the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. By the time I was at secondary school, I started getting the new LGBT education, which says, you know, if you don't feel like a girl, well, then you could be born in the wrong body. It's sort of become the obsession of the hours every day on how am I perceived. And if someone calls me she, then I have failed. It's just further evidence that I am broken. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. There's no such thing as gender. There's, there's biological sex. What we're doing is saying that girls who do not feel like girls are actually not girls. Hello and welcome back to the 180 cast, where we explore the brains of people who have done what seems to be impossible in this political and cultural climate, change their minds. I am your host, Georgie Borman. We are revisiting an important topic today, and that is gender transition. If you follow my writing as well as this podcast, you know I do have my own firm convictions on this subject, but also I really believe in compassion and dignity and respect and empathy. And these are so important and so lacking in the conversations that we have, not just on this subject, but on practically any subject across the board, politically, culturally, religiously. And those are so important to me. So these interviews are about understanding why people change their minds and letting them speak for themselves and advocate for their positions and explain why they think other people may be in the same boat as them and what they might be thinking. So way back in episode six, which seems so long ago, I spoke with Walt Hare, who lived uh, as a woman for many years. He did the hormones, the surgery, and then he changed his mind. Um, his perspective is really valuable, but it's only one perspective, and we seek more than one perspective on this podcast on any given subject, and while I have not had the success yet in finding a transgender guest for the podcast to represent the quote-unquote opposite view, I do consider it a privilege to interview others who have detransitioned or stopped transitioning, and having a female perspective in addition to a male one and a younger perspective in addition to an older one um, is critical, I think, if we are going to have a well-rounded understanding of gender transition from the mouths of people who have actually lived it and who are passionate about their 180 and are speaking out um, on on what they what they think about this subject and how we should approach it as a society and just as individuals. So my next guest is the founder of the Detransition Advocacy Network, 
It is a growing group of people who have either stopped the transition pro process or detransitioned with the aim of building a network of support for people who are changing their minds about gender transition. Charlie Evans, I am so glad you could join me today. Hey, thank you for having me. All right, before we dive in, please subscribe to the podcast to stay updated because we release a new episode every Friday with bi-weekly breakdowns where I break down and analyze these interviews to see what we can learn about how minds truly change. And I talk about the top news stories and the issues of our day as well as some pop culture stuff. So please hit the subscribe button in whatever podcast catcher you are listening in and thank you in advance if you do. Okay. We may begin. So, Charlie, you were living, um, you identified as a, as a transgender man before, right? Yeah, yeah, from, um, from sort of my teenage years. That's really young. So take me back to that mindset. Why did you feel like you needed to transition in the first place? So I think that um, my experience with this starts really, really young, probably you know, as young as three or four years old. Um, and very much not feeling like I fit in with girls. That was sort of the key to all of it. Uh, I liked football. I liked um, rugby and trucks and boxing on the TV. And um, and sort of had this growing feeling as I got older and older that I must have been something was wrong with me. And um, by the time I was at secondary school, I started getting the new uh, LGBT education um which which says you know if you don't feel like a girl um then perhaps you're not actually a girl and you could be born in the wrong body and, and what what grade was that when that education started okay so that would be our year eight or year seven so yeah. that'd be your grade I think that's your grade is that your grade nine about 11 years old 12 years old 11 12 um, okay yeah so that's yeah, like so that's like, like sixth or seventh grade in, oh, Amer in American speak yeah yeah, so it, it's like our first couple of years of high school is um, is when I had this. And, um, you know, obviously for a girl that, that chopped off all of her hair and I knew I liked girls really young. I was really young the first time I think I realised those. Um, I was into, you know, we were playing kiss chase and everyone else was kissing boys and I suddenly realised I'm the only girl that chases girls. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So when I was sort of told, yeah, you could be born in the wrong body, it felt like it, it fit in. And then I sort of, yeah, slowly started um, getting more and more adamant about what pronouns I wanted to be used. And I started like binding my chest and um, I started going to a gender therapist. And was it was this at the the encouragement of adults in your life or peers or was it more something that you sort of struck out on your own based off of the just the education? It was a little bit of both. Um, so in the UK, clinicians have to affirm gender. So cl clinicians are not allowed to say, no, you're not a boy. So the second, if, if you say it with any sort of confidence, if you say, I am a boy and I, I use male pronouns, school can't challenge that and doctors can't challenge that. Um, so I, I think even my parents didn't want to um, because we're taught that this is the new progressive way um, and that this is this is positive and this is how you help kids that feel like I felt or feel like I feel so your parents were supportive in this they were admirably neutral <laughs> <laughs> um, so they didn't use male pronouns but they also didn't use female 
Um, That's difficult. Yeah, yeah, it was. They they did a very good job of Charlie says Charlie will come home later in front of me. And then I'm sure behind my back they didn't. Um, And then, yeah, I fell into sort of after after I'd already got the ball rolling on sort of saying I am I am a boy. uh, Then I fell into a friendship group that were all about eight of us, I think, maybe more. And all of us were women that identified as men, identified as boys. And that within your school or just like a broader network? No, it was just a complete coincidence. They were, um, I was a foster parent when I was 18 and they were the kids of other foster parents who also happened to be about 18, 19. Um, so completely, completely random. Like there was no, it wasn't an LGBT group or anything. And, um, yeah, really bizarre, but I think maybe suggests the, the social contagion element of gender dysphoria. Right. Um, because they'd all met completely randomly as well. All of us had. Um, and yeah, that accelerated it a lot. And that meant I was spending a lot more time online and researching and getting quite involved and quite obsessed with gender and the way people saw me and this fixation that there must be something wrong with my body and thinking about the way I spoke and like reading all sorts of books and YouTube videos on how to make my voice deeper or how to walk different. And it, it sort of become the obsession of every day for hours every day on how am I perceived? And if someone calls me she, then I have failed and I'm, it's just evidence. It's just further evidence that I am broken and there is something wrong. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, wasn't wildly healthy for me. So these, um, videos that that you mentioned that sort of teach you these things can you tell me a little bit more about that because I don't know very much about that but I'm sure other people who are listening are curious about like what's out there on YouTube and um you know like the the keywords and and the things um and the things that go into people who identify as the opposite sex like um, sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, training themselves to, you know, like you said, um, be perceived in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, so when I talk about um, these sort of videos, you've got to remember the last decade stuff has changed. I think yeah. that this is even more prevalent now than it was when I was that age. Um, but I used to, I used to be really obsessed with watching, at the time I would call them top surgery videos but what I was watching were 18 19 year old girls having mastectomies um when they do like progression videos and you see you know a a sad looking sort of lesbian girl then look very very happy and all her scars heal and and as she recovers from this mastectomy um there's surgery videos I don't think I watched actual surgery videos um I think I was worried it would put me off um which is funny because I think it probably would have been done me some good to have been put off earlier than I was um and what else did I used to watch a lot of like yeah dress videos how to layer your clothes in a certain way to cover up the fact you've got a female body um and there's like vocal coaching you can get like an hour-long video and it you repeat certain phrases in a certain way or you sing in a certain way to bring the tone of your voice down um and yeah a lot of uh, sort of a lot of the the videos now seem to be based around selling things as well so we didn't have that Mm -hmm. when I was back in my day we didn't have that um but now it often seems linked to you know where where I would put you know a a 
ball of socks in my jeans there's now youtube videos on oh and click the link to buy a prosthetic to do that um so it's it's taken a lot more of a marketing approach now which i think's quite haunting um is this instagram as well because sure a lot of people market on instagram so <laughs> yeah i expect so um i don't i don't use instagram much yeah um but yes i expect so i would i'd expect that i know that there's a um, in the states there's a, a ftm no um yeah ftm surgeon who uploads photographs of his patients on instagram um, wow yeah it's really quite jarring to see it especially seeing as how young some of some of these women are you know really like 17 18 years old um and Wait, in what see, country i'm sorry what country is he based out in of? the states in the states he's american yeah yeah um i don't want to name the clinician but he's, he's quite easy to find on on instagram and i know that he markets mastectomies directly to teenagers using instagram um and in the uk we have um a consultant psychiatrist who uses tumblr to market to to teenagers um and is very successful at doing so would you say uh, how much of this market do you believe is targeted toward teenagers or minors i'd say all of it i think all of it almost all of it so not really a, toward the people who are more middle-aged and then decide that they want to no it's definitely young girls it's it's, it's most certainly um the, the whole way that it's presented and the whole like you know even even something like tumblr obviously is a teenage girls platform you know very very few middle-aged men use tumblr um so yeah it's strange because i think yeah 10 years ago i would have seen that as a, a really positive sign that they were down with the kids and they must be cool and they must care about trans people they must care about people with gender dysphoria and then now now I see it as incredibly sinister because what sort of surgeon scouts on social media for patients like that? So what changed? When did you begin to realize that you didn't want to do this anymore? I guess I had two 180s at different points on different things. So when I guess I decided I didn't want to do it anymore sort of as I started going to university and I thought, you know, I'm I'm going to return to this one day. I'm going to return to this when I've got money, because I was getting frustrated at how slow the process is um, here. Um, and I said I'm going to return after school, and then sort of trying to sit through, you know, twelve hours of lectures and studying and workshops every day, wearing a binder, which sort of imagine the the compression of a corset. Um, and yeah. eventually, I was like, oh, I'm not really going to my education became more important than how people saw me that was a real key thing and I thought you know what it doesn't matter that people see me as a girl one day I'm gonna have the money and one day I'm gonna be able to fix it and then um about a year ago I tweeted that um a group of lesbians were a horrible hateful group that didn't represent me because they didn't represent uh because they didn't accept trans women as women and I wrote this tweet and I called them TERFs and someone really And for me those listening, TERFs means, um, means um, trans-exclusive radical feminist. Yeah, but it's a, it's a misnomer. It's not a real term at all. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's mostly just thrown around as an insult. Yeah. 
and and I I would throw it around as an insult, absolutely, and had done for a while. And um, yeah, so this this friend of mine sort of said, reconsider your position on this and have a think on it. And I've I've known her for years. I've followed her work for for years. She's a, a you know a prominent scientist and has a you know PhD more PhDs than I have socks. <laughs> and thought, well, she's not stupid. She's not she's not like I thought she's not like religious right you know she's not I believe boys should be boys and girls should be girls she's she's a gender non-conforming bisexual woman left-leaning mm-hmm. and so I went to a friend's house and I was like well it turns out that new friend's a turf and she went oh you can't ever talk to her again I was like yeah I know obviously <laughs> and then <laughs> and then I said oh but maybe we should just have a look on her twitter just to see what the horrible turfs actually think and so me and this friend were sitting in the attic of her, her London apartment and we worked our way through a few bottles of wine and a couple of packets of cigarettes. And I was just thinking, she sort of does have a point though, doesn't she? And I said it to my friend who's um, a lesbian woman that I've been friends with for you know more than a decade. And in, very, very quietly she went, yeah, she has got a point though, hasn't she? So what were these points? Like what, what stuck out to you when you were scrolling through that Twitter that you were like, oh, that, that makes sense. I think the, the the biggest thing was how how sexist I felt a lot of the trans uh, gender identity movement is, i.e. I like dresses and I like high heels and lipstick, therefore I'm a woman because that's how women feel. And I thought that's not actually the propping up of gender that I like. I like we, we should have more gender nonconformity. No one should feel like they should wear a dress and no one should feel like they shouldn't wear a dress. And I started to just sort of see it more and more that that there's no such thing as gender there's there's biological sex but that has no bearing on my because I am female that has no bearing on if I like cooking or if I like dresses it mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't mean any of that anymore and I feel like gender identity has taken a massive massive step backwards I don't feel like it's progressive because what we're doing is saying that girls who do not feel like girls are actually not girls and that's not true girl is a sex it's not a gender identity it's not a series of of stereotypes that one conforms to or doesn't conform to I'm no less of a woman just because I don't like wearing bras and I don't shave my armpits like to to prop that up in this way that we're doing is, is a huge step backwards for society it's not progressive it's not helping anyone and you know I'm still dysphoric I still have gender dysphoria it's still unpleasant but I don't think that it makes me a man any more than feeling like I'm fat makes me actually fat. Just some days I feel it. Like I don't think that my brain has full understanding of what's going on because human brains don't. <laughs> um, they're fallible. Right. So now I see it as the pro- it's a problem with the way I see my body. It's not actually a physical problem with my body. Whereas when I was trans-identifying, it was just a symptom that, yes, in fact, I am incorrect and I need to be fixed. I need to go and have a hysterectomy and a mastectomy and um, have my forearm, you know, grafted into a penis or something. You know, I thought that was the only way to live. Right. Rather than go, you know, actually, it's okay. I don't have to like dresses. I don't have to wear makeup. (laughs) That doesn't make me less. Right. So when, after you you were sort of scrolling through this doctor's Twitter and you were like, oh, she kind of has a point. Where did you go from there? 
so from her, I literally went from her Twitter to a, a who's now a friend of mine's Twitter um, and started scrolling through her posts. Then I started reading, I don't know if you've heard of the philosopher Kathleen Stock, um, but I started reading some philosophical work about what, what is actually gender. Is there any such, such thing as gender identity? Does this exist? Is it the same as innate um, sexual orientation? Is it the same as being born gay or being born straight? Are you born a girl or a boy in your brain mm-hmm. or is it just a sex? And then I think within a month, I changed my mind completely and realised I was wrong. I messaged the original friend and said I was absolutely wrong in every way. Um, and she said, oh, can I introduce you to some friends? And she introduced me to sort of the women leading um, leading the kickback against gender identity in the UK. And, yeah, so within a month of her saying, I think you should reconsider that tweet, um, I was... Uh, protesting with the group that I'd called TERFs. That's quick. Um, <laughs> yeah, really quick. They were very suspicious of me, and so rightly. <laughs> um, they they video called me before they let me know the location of the protest. Right. Um, <laughs> and I, st- I, you know, I, I have bright blue hair. I'm, I'm, sus- I'm suspicious looking. To, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm suspicious looking to gender critical feminists. Um, okay, so and- what were the, could do you, do you recall like what what papers or books you read, just for sake of the listener, if they want to go and look that up as well? I I really really recommend on Twitter. Um, her handle is Gia Gia. Um, she was she was absolutely the. the is that G I G G I A G I A? Okay. Um, and she just makes some fantastic. She makes some fantastic points and she illustrates them very well. And I think one of my favourite things she ever tweeted was that sex is binary. Sex absolutely is binary. And she said that, you know, a dimmer switch on a on a light switch, the light's either off or on. It's binary, even if when it's on, you can dim it. And she she just puts things into such easy to understand, um, easy to understand um sort of bite-sized pieces that mm. really helped me start to understand um and anything written by Kathleen Stock um is very very good Caroline Criado Perez is also amazing she writes about um uh biological sex and the differences um and also the way in which oppression is sex-based it's not because you feel like a woman that you're oppressed you're oppressed because you're biologically a woman it doesn't matter if you identify as a man you are always going to be oppressed for being female um so yeah she writes some amazing stuff as well and then there's like the you know old school rad femmes in the uk um sheila jeffries particularly um i think yeah changing my mind on the trans stuff didn't just change my mind on that it absolutely changed the whole way i see the world everything um i never thought i'd be anti-surrogacy or anti-porn but i am um that's very interesting yeah, um, anti-sex work. I was very pro-sex work when I was a liberal feminist. Um, it's just completely shifted how I see the world. Hey, it's still me. Just here to say, if you want to hear Charlie and I discuss why she changed her mind on surrogacy and sex work, you will have to listen to the 180 cast bonus round. Release date still to be determined, but sometime soon. Let's get back to it. What, what do you think is is driving this this sort of hockey stick spike in the number of 
of teenagers who identify as transgender? Do you think this is a social contagion or is it something else? Like what are the factors you think are driving this? Because it's it's exploded in the past few years. It's really, really something. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. So it used to be 80% of referrals through our National Health Service for gender reassignment were male, male to female. And that's shifted in the last decade, and now 80% are women or girls. They're not even women. Most of them are girls. Um, no one knows the answer, and I think that's really scary. We, we've got a TV show here, Newsnight, and we had a, a representative from from the NHS's gender clinic say openly on, on national TV, we don't know. We don't know why. We don't know why there's been this massive, massive spike. Um, and we don't, you know, we don't know why last year, I believe it was seven children aged three years old and four years old that were referred to these services, obviously for counselling, not surgery, but, you know, still says a lot that someone's looked at their three-year-old and said, you must be born in the wrong body off the Tavistock. Yeah, I have um, a three-year-old. Like, she, you know, she could identify as a unicorn. And like Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, I'd I'd like to, I mean, I don't know you, but like, I'd like to think if you saw her playing with dinosaurs, you wouldn't believe, ah, oh, she must be born in the wrong body. She must right. be a boy. You'd think, oh, maybe yeah. she wants to be an archaeologist. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I think it's really messed up that we're not, we're forcing kids into these boxes. Um, but yeah, there's, there's basically been no research onto it. So anything I say is absolutely speculative. Um, I think a lot of it's homophobia. Most of the young women that end up having these surgeries are same-sex attracted they're mm. lesbians um and i think lesbians are more lesbian youth are more susceptible because they already feel like there's something wrong with them and um, why live as an oppressed gay woman if you can live as the oppressor if you can live as a straight man and i think that that's being sold as a cure to eating disorders or depression body confidence issues, all the things that every single girl in the entire world has experienced. Um, and I think it's being sold as like a way So if to, you can just like ditch the problematic category and move on to something that's less problematic, it seems like a appealing solution. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And especially as we move forward for this, this push of if you feel like a man or you say you're a man, then you really are a man. You know, we're, we're no longer treating gender dysphoria as a disorder of the way in which we see ourselves. We're seeing gender dysphoria as literally being born in the wrong body. Um, where it used to be, you know, old school transsexuals in, in the 90s, it, you, you know, we knew that a trans woman was a man that wanted to be treated as a woman and we respected that and we did that. And that wasn't a problem because they weren't closing down rape crisis centres, they weren't, you know trying to access all female spaces in the way that they are now because the the motto today is you you know you don't need surgery you don't need a gender recognition certificate you just need to say you're a woman and you're as much of a woman as anyone else any other woman and i think that's hugely dangerous for absolutely for, on on both sides of it because it means that young lesbians can't access spaces that are just for lesbians without having males there, intact males who haven't had surgery, who've maybe not even seen a doctor, who say, well, I'm a lesbian, you must 
Hmm. be attracted to me because I'm a woman exactly the same as you are because I say I'm a woman so I think the lesbians are getting so caught out where they don't have actually space for other women who are same-sex attracted they're just being um sort of abducted by this movement um do you feel like it's kind of like when you when you you were talking earlier about the concept of gender and does it even exist I sometimes think of it like, do you think it's like pulling up the tent pegs in a windstorm almost? It's like biological sex is the tent pegs and that's what's what's holding the whole thing down that we all sit in. Absolutely. And then you're that's like really good and then you're like now but now there's this thing called gender and and it's not connected at all to biological sex. So we can just uproot that, but then you're like, but where's the tent going to go from here? Yeah. I kind of feel like yeah, that's exactly. where we're at. It doesn't make any sense to me to categorize humans based on their inner feeling of if they're a woman or a man. It only makes sense to categorize by sex. It doesn't make like because if we're doing that, then you're a woman and I'm a man. If we're categorizing based on stereotypes, does that make sense? It does Whereas, rely very heavily on stereotypes, doesn't it? Hugely, hugely, hugely. Whereas in reality, the only thing that me, you, and every other woman in the world have in common is our sex. That's it. We don't have anything else in common. We don't have, you know, it's not this girly feeling that can be in a man's brain. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there was this, um, there was this essay I read a while ago that, that uh, one of my writer friends recommended to me, and I think it's called, I think it's called What Is It Like to Be a Bat or something like that, and mm-hmm. and it talked about how if you, the gist of it was, if it's very thick, <laughs> but like the gist of it, I think was, if you have never been a bat, you don't, you, there's, you have no reference point to understand what it's like to be a bat. To be a bat. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really good, like, yeah, it's another really good analogy is, yeah, when a, when a male person says they feel like a woman, do they mean that they've been oppressed as a woman through their life? Or do they mean they like heels and dresses and other sort of stereotypes? Because, you know, a male does not know how it feels to be female. They can only make that basis on what they know from an external perspective of what women look like to them. And I don't see the purpose of dividing humans for the sake of sport based on that feeling. (laughs) You know, it only makes sense to use sex. Um, because otherwise, yeah, it's, it's sexist. I think that's 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 the key thing that changed my mind was realizing it's sexist. Hugely. Mm. Um, so, what do you think young people, especially, need to know about transitioning now that you've you you obviously did all of this this research and you identified as a man for a significant period of time. You didn't go through with the other stuff, but you know a lot about this. So, what do you think? young people who feel like they have gender dysphoria or that they're in the wrong body, what do you think they need to know about the transition process? I think, so my, my real job is I'm, I'm a biologist, I'm a human biologist, which makes it more ironic that it took me 28 years to realize sex is real and gender isn't. <laughs> um, there is, these surgeries are experimental. The hormones are experimental. When I speak to women who have detransitioned, 
I can't give them answers for a lot of stuff because the papers aren't there, the research isn't there. We know that it might minutely make you feel better to have those surgeries, much like in the same way that someone with an eating disorder might feel better when they're at a thinner weight, when they're at a, you know, when they feel slimmer, they might have some alleviation of their eating disorder symptoms. Um, but I would argue that obviously neither of those things are healthy. I don't think that's healthy at all. I think understanding that there has been no studies to show what it would be like if someone had had intensive therapy instead of medical intervention. But also, I think if there was sort of one message I could give to every single trans identifying girl would be join the fight to change society to fit the gender non-conforming, stop fighting to change the gender non-conforming to fit a very, very binary view on what being a man and what being a woman is. Um, and for you, so it sounds like what you mean by gender non-conforming is more like you don't subscribe to the stereotypes that that gender identity usually relies on versus like what technically being non-binary or gender fluid or something like that. Like, do you make a distinction? Um, I don't. I think gender non-conforming really is the same as non-binary, but the the I find the terminology non-binary insulting because it implies that some people are binary and I don't believe anyone is binary. No one fully conforms to every stereotype of their sex. Um, but yeah, it's basically the same thing. I, I have it a lot on Twitter. People tell me, oh, you're just agender. That's, you know, you're non-binary agender. And it's like, I have a personality. Like everyone has a personality. These aren't genders, they're personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I think the tearing down of the boxes would be more helpful than um, making new boxes. Mm. Um, but yeah, if if I was to sort of be categorised by um, liberal feminists, I'm, I'm absolutely sort of non-binary, queer, homo-romantic, I don't know, there's <laughs> a lot of labels. <laughs> um, whereas I just say, yeah, I'm a female and I have a personality. That's it. These things aren't. We don't need to keep categorizing stuff. Let people be people. Well, it seems the categories are like ever expanding. Like I think Facebook has like a hundred different things that you can choose on, choose yeah. from to identify yourself. It's like every year they keep adding more things. Yeah, I think our National Health Service recognizes over seventy. Um, the NHS, think, they yeah, our, they recognize yeah, our, over seventy. Yeah, um, if you fill out a form or if you, you know, their their website page has got, I think it's 73, I might be wrong, but lots. And they include, you know, demi-girl, which is when someone feels like they're sometimes a girl. And obviously when they feel like they're sometimes a girl, they put on a dress and paint their nails. Um, and I think that highlights the sexism really, really clearly as well, um, is, yeah. you know, transsexualism I understand in that I do believe gender dysphoria can be so debilitating that you can't see yourself living as any other way. But when you start hearing of people who identify for yeah, for example, as a demi girl, and what they mean by that is they're traditionally masculine six days of the week and one day of the week they are traditionally feminine. That's nothing more than sexist to say that that makes you a girl in any way. What it makes you is a man with a character (laughs) and Mm -hmm. i think that should be encouraged let men wear dresses 
like I think that's cool. I just don't think it makes anyone a girl. Um, yeah. What are the biggest things driving people, especially young people, to stay transitioned or continue along that path even when they have doubts? That's a good question. I think there's a lot of misinformation. Um, One of the things I hear a lot, so in the UK, one of the women that my charity helped, um, she's sort of quite high profile after last month there was um she was involved in a documentary and she had full surgery she had everything including um the the prosthetic uh penis the um grafted from her forearm and she had all of it and when i talked to her she says that one of the things that kept her going was this reassurance that oh after the next surgery you'll feel better which was partly her telling herself that. I was also partly her clinician saying that. Um, because, you know, she was so textbook in how much she hates her body. Really, really full of self-loathing. Um, and so she said, like, she kept chasing, you know, it's this carrot on the end of a stick. One day I will feel better. And she had her last surgery 17 years ago and detransitioned this year. Um, although I say detransitioned, you know, Obviously, the, the majority of, of her surgeries are irreversible. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's a lot of it. And I think a complete lack of resources about detransition is another one um, or desistance. Um, for me, I'm, I find it hard to find a therapist that will help me with gender dysphoria who won't tell me that I'm actually a man born in the wrong body. I want someone to help me overcome the way I see my body. I don't want someone to tell me I should go and have it surgically altered. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah I think it's probably a combination of that like once you're in the rabbit hole and all your friends are you know I've I've had most of my friends have completely turned their back on me the last mm-hmm. year um, and I understand that if you've gone through all those surgeries even if you feel regret how can you leave it how can you have spent five years telling your family that they must affirm your gender and telling your friends that they must and then and say actually I, I got it wrong and now, mm-hmm. you know, now that they're, I know, I know a 19 year old who's had a hysterectomy and, and a mastectomy. How, and she has detransitioned, but like. You barely you know, know what you're going to do with your life at 19. It's exactly. like to have a, such a drastic surgery. Like that's, how easy is it to get those kind of surgeries in the UK? Uh, highly depends on how much money you've got. If you've got money. There's basically no barriers. I think my my saving grace might have been that I'm working class, so the waiting list were years long, so it slowed it down. But most of the D-trans women I speak to went private, um, so it might be quite. It's sort of like an interesting uh, point because usually healthcare um, fails the working class, and in this case, it's almost failing the middle and the upper more than it is us. Because at least we have to wait and we have to think about our choice. Whereas um, this friend, uh, this woman that the charity's helping, she had a testosterone injection her first appointment and had her referral from mastectomy on the second appointment because she went private. So, yeah, yeah, it highly depends on if you've got money. So how much of this 
in terms of keeping people along this path is driven by the clinicians. Like you said, you have a hard time finding a therapist who won't uh, affirm your dysphoria. Um, Mm -hmm. How much of this is driven by the clinicians? Like we've already talked about the marketing that goes on and the videos that are so accessible from doctors that young kids are viewing. Is this uh, more like a driven by by peers and like the education that you mentioned that you received in school or is it like once once they hook you in do you think that the the doctors are really the ones who can drive this process further i don't know if i'm articulating this the right way but like doctors have a lot of um authority and we give them a lot of respect and we trust what they have to say so are they a bigger part of the problem than maybe we're giving credit to? I think I think that their their silence is more criminal than any act that they're doing. I think that we have absolutely abandoned the scientific method. Um I don't think I don't think what they're doing is sinister in terms of I think they genuinely believe they're helping people. So much in the same way that your doctor might push you to take prenatal supplements, you know, like I think that they think that they're doing the best thing where they where they are being absolutely criminal is that they're not looking at the deep data. They're not thinking critically. Um, I do believe that a lot of it privately is um, is financially motivated. Um, one, one prominent surgeon has on his website. I didn't start this surgery for altruistic reasons I started it because I have a mortgage to pay and I think he's spot on is exactly why private clinicians get into this is is very money motivated but in terms of the NHS we don't pay for any of this we don't pay for anything our healthcare is um usually very good in that aspect so if you go through the NHS route you've not paid for your mastectomy or any of the surgeries you don't pay a single penny towards it you pay seven pound fifty eight pound fifty for a prescription a month so like ten dollars and that's it um so i don't think i think it is clinician driven but through the best intent unless it's private in which case a lot of it's money intent but i think the thing that we're getting wrong is we're letting it be patient-led of course if i hate my body having a mastectomy, if I hate my breast, having a mastectomy makes sense. And we're letting we're letting patients have too much autonomy in this. Rather than say, actually, there's nothing wrong with your body, let's consider therapy. Clinicians are saying, yes, you're right. And you have the right to say that because yes, you are born in the wrong body. And yes, we will do that for you. And we're letting it be led by people that are probably not in a position that they're able to consent. Um, but the fact that doctors and scientists are staying very quiet about this, biologists particularly mm-hmm. and psychologists you know I met a friend today for lunch she's a neuropsychologist and she knows this is all nonsense she knows what we're doing is horrendous she can't speak out she'll lose her job like it's it's that silence that I find more scary and that it's the silence that's leading it um because it's going unquestioned and unchallenged what do you typically tell people especially young people, teenagers who are seriously considering transitioning, because I'm sure maybe some of them have reached out to you, right? Or reached out to people, you know, if, if you just had a couple minutes to give them a heads up about the, 
the potential hardships and the downsides and the the philosophical side of it in terms of biological sex and what you talked about oppression and things like that like what would you say if you just had a couple minutes um i think that there is i would say that there is so much more important in in life so many things that are more important in life than the way people see you and that you can be part of breaking that mold about how you're seen every time someone calls me a sir or mister or challenges me in the women's toilets i feel like i get to go okay that's changed one person's perception of what it's like to be a like what being a woman means and that that is the way we, we move forwards um but also that gender reassignment surgery is still going to be there in 10 years you don't have to think about it at 18 like we know that brain development doesn't finish until at least about 23 average at about 25 wait until after that the surgeries are still going to be there they're still going to be available to you like exhaust all other options a life committed to hormones and surgery isn't a life you know if if you have any way of getting out of this without having to have that everyone any trans person will tell you to anyone will tell you that it's much better to try to avoid that sort of medical intervention to exhaust all other options first and spend a lot of time on yourself like you know it sounds super hippie I am a bit super hippie but like (laughs) you know meditate yoga go get some hobbies make your personality more than just gender you know find what you love in life find music and find that everyone's got that one thing that makes them tick don't let it be gender find something else um and indulge in that and be you and be the most you you can be and know that this stuff's always going to be hanging around it's not going to go anywhere like it's not a rush (laughs) um so yeah i think that's the um find pick up a book on radical feminism like if every 18 year old would just read a book (laughs) on radical feminism (laughs) i thought you're like required to read that stuff i mean at least in university you know i guess maybe you don't maybe that stuff's being rooted out but when i was in college yeah when i was in college you you know usually read read some of that stuff no here even if you don't agree you know you should be exposed to it yeah i I totally agree because i don't think everyone is radical feminist no no, obviously not everyone's going to agree with all of the points but liberal feminism (laughs) is just the worst like i can't believe i was a liberal feminist for so much of my life that i used to genuinely say things like you know it's it's it you know it's empowering to i don't know and then list a lot of things that of course men are going to want women to feel is empowering you know like sex work um yeah Yeah. it's all been replaced our curriculum doesn't include rad firm literature only liberal yeah this has been so interesting and you've given so much insight uh into this subject i really really appreciate it you taking the time to to talk about this subject because I really do feel it's important and I and I, I appreciate the work that you're you're doing with your network. Do you want to give a, a little spiel about what that's about and where where people can connect and and support you and things like that? Sure. So I was meant to have a website launched two months ago, but I haven't um, because turns out launching an international charity is a lot harder than I thought. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we're on Twitter. Uh, we've got a Twitter handle, the trans ad net. 
Um, but if you search the Detransition Advocacy Network, you'll get, you know, five pages of Google of, of my face um, <laughs> and ways to contact us. Um, yeah, we we uh, we have a couple of services that are up and running. One of them is a uh, I offer a 24-7 listening service for which I'm a one woman band at the moment. And we have um, a counsellor and we can provide both services completely free of charge, a professional counsellor um for anyone struggling with gender dysphoria who feel that transition either isn't the right option for them or who started transition uh, and no longer want to pursue it but also we have gently branched out into um people who have re-identified so if you've re-identified and and you now feel like you're non-binary obviously my political beliefs are that that's you know not the way forward but we're absolutely 100% behind anyone who re-identifies in any way. And, yeah, hopefully our website will be running soon. It's my New Year's resolution to get, get the website done. Um, yeah, and we, All do, right. we do a lot of forwarding, so parents as well, parents of trans-identifying kids, we've got contacts. Um, All right. Yeah, reach out. We don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't buy it. <laughs> See, I love these conversations because I'm sure there's, like, loads, you know, there's loads and loads of stuff that we would disagree on. But on this one issue, you know, it's so important for people to be able to come together when they agree and like be able to talk about this stuff and, and like, I don't know, unite in a way. So like, I so appreciate you again, taking the time to talk with me about this. And I'm really excited to, to share it with the listener. And I think that they're going to get a lot out of it. And hopefully, especially, um, parents is what I'm hoping we'll be able to to pull yeah. a lot out of this thanks for having me I really appreciate it all right you can call or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802 if you have thoughts on this episode if you want to flip out or maybe try to flip my position tell me about your own flip-flop 323-999-1802 and you can follow the podcast on twitter and instagram at 180 cast please consider giving the podcast a quick review on apple podcasts if you like it it does help so much in me being able to put more of episodes like this together that really help people that really give interesting substantial conversation um and move the discourse forward you can also follow me at my opinions are completely uncensored until next time Kevin McCullough share your music by Ricky Craft and Joe Kim Norton say in your mind God bless who have got in the middle of struggle Lord let me see who I am what I need who have got to be